want to speak um, about we the people, our constitution, and I'm going to go back into some history about how it came about. Um, and it's funny, you get to this age and you're finally paying attention to history. And it is so awesome to read and study and learn about our true American history without the editing, without taking out prayer, without taking out the spiritual journey that was so much a part of this, the calling, the, the real reason that we're a nation. And I've touched on this, um, it seems a few years back. And today on July 4th, I decided I'm going to do something about this um, today. And um, I have my little Constitution handbook that's been chewed on by probably my grandson. He probably got a hold of that at some point. And um, <clears throat> on this day of July 4th, 1776, a declaration was made when in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and nature's God entitles them. A decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such, such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to effect their safety and happiness. Prudence, indeed, will dictate that governments long established should be changed for light and transient causes. And accordingly, all experience has shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, and I just took a moment to look up that word, 
dictionaries are wonderful things. Despotism means absolute power, authority, unlimited or and uncontrolled by men, constitution or laws, and depending on the will of the prince or whoever the principality is. It is their right, it is their duty to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. And then it goes on. So, a question has come up, um, even among my peers, and I've, I've been back and forth about this most of my life, Christian life, especially in the ministry, to what extent is the church to be involved in politicals, typically the phrase that's used to describe the government. Um, and there's this, uh, this consensus, um, and, and it began with this, this ruling about church, uh, the separation of church and state, which is kind of a gray area anyways. And then the interpretation of that, which I always say this about the scriptures, interpretation's everything. Every false teacher uses scriptures to prove their, their doctrine. So just because something's scripture, just because it's, it's written, it needs interpreted. And the grounds and basis and context that you interpret from makes all the difference in the world, doesn't it? So I, I've gone back and forth with this through my life. But I've arrived at this moment, this point when the reason that our nation is in the state that is in is because the church, not as an institution, but we, the church as a people, we have not participated. We withdrew. We stopped speaking a voice that would confront or call out things and unchecked this nation that was under God and we believe called by God. And as I go through this history, you, you realize how, how, how much God was involved, who we are, and this, I have, I've literally been intrigued by the Constitution itself. It is such a magnificent document and um, so the more I look at it, I'm like this, and I've said this, it's, there's so, it is so comparable, it's so, um, uh, it's, it's, it's of the same spirit that our Bible is. Like they're, they're not contradictory to, to one another. They're, they, they're, they can be held together without conflict because the Constitution came out of that and out of prayer about how to lead people. And so to this thing that the church shouldn't be involved in government, especially politics, I, I would, I would uh, I'll respond, first of all, that, that in every church there is government. In order for there to be peace and, and uh, uh, prosperity and, and coherence, there, needs to, there need to be leaders, there, needs to, there need to be Rules, laws, call them what you want, bylaws, every church calls them different things, book of order. Uh, those, in order for things to be run peacefully and for there to be order, and God is not against this, there has to be government. 
there has to be leadership. There has to be, and and every every uh, individual organization, church-wise, uh, gets to decide what they're how they're going to lay that out. So to say that we shouldn't be involved in politics or government, I, I would I would return that with, do you not have government in your church in your church organization? Yes, you do. And and what the church has to be careful of is to keep politic that spirit of politics out of the church because it can show what it shows up right there we always have to watch why how and what and so the constitution sets us instead of under men as individuals it sets us under a standard a law rules that can't be changed so that the governing authority just like our kingdom mentality it comes from the scriptures now, we don't like to talk about the law because we, it gets in, entangled with legalism and we don't want to live in that and walk in that. But there must be absolutes. You cannot just disregard those rules and just throw that out. Let's just be led by the Spirit. That, will bring, that brings chaos to every church if they try to walk that out, if they, they get rid of the standard, the blueprints, the, the black and whites. There have to be absolutes. That's what gives a people peace, and that was what our founding fathers went after. In 1776, this declaration was made July 4th. The Revolutionary War took place, was beginning, ending, how, wherever it was. Um, and there was this great celebration we made it but what I was not aware of and um, I have a couple books that this uh, book by Ned Ryan R-Y-U-N written um, I think maybe around 2016 I'm not sure um, excellent I love this book Becky yeah, borrow, I'm, yeah she wants to finish reading it um, uh, I, I read half of it I loan it to her, then I'm like, hey, I need that book back, and so we've been doing this. It is a, a wonderful description of, and I think I, maybe I've even read out of it a little bit before, about what the, the backdrop of all of these crucial decisions were when our Constitution was formed, how it came about, and, and what I'd never seen, my own fault probably, uh, what I'd never seen was what happened right after the Revolutionary War was won. As the British ships sailed off, what were they thinking? Not necessarily that they were defeated. They're like, just give them some time. They'll collapse because as a na we, weren't, we weren't a nation. As these colonies, there wasn't a problem with being under, under Britain. We had, um, the, the colonists had this autonomy, they could, they were self-ruling, self-governing. They would check with uh, Britain and got permission to establish colonies, and they were interacting all through of their young growth. They would get permission to establish things and to grow, and it was growing really fast. There was this really awesome thing going on. They found these freedoms, and the whole reason they came here in the first place was to escape the religious tyranny that they were under so they could have religious freedom. That, that's why they came here. That's what attracted people from all over Europe, the prosperity and the religious freedom. And, and so the whole reason that they came in the first place was to have this freedom. And, and it came at great cost to come, come here. And so... Um, 
in, um, there's one thing that I want to read. I've got a couple things going on. Uh, Eric McTaxis was um, such a, uh, is, is all of a sudden come on the scene for me. And he had written um, the books about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, which so impacted me. And then all of a sudden this has exploded. It shows up, Mike Bickle has just had this gathering, this um, I don't, sovereign gathering of leaders that all individually called him and said, I feel like I'm supposed to come to IHOP, a house of prayer out in Kansas City, just to spend a couple weeks with you, no agenda, don't need to speak. And it was Francis Chan and Eric McTaxis ends up coming. Um, what's the new, I, we, I, we can never remember his, Chris Reed comes, which he is now gonna be the leader of Morningstar and is, is it, in all likenesses is the, the next Paul, the new Paul Kane on the scene, calling out things phenomenal. And um, there were a couple other men Kim Fish, who is a big part of the Vineyard Movement, and what was the last? Andy, Andy Bird, who is with Youth with a Mission. So um, I am gonna take a, a week or two about this because there's so, so much stuff that's just coming together. Those guys just gathered uh, a ton, like individually they called Mike, can we come, can we come? He gets these phone calls like boom, 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 boom from this these different people. He ends up with five or six of these ex significant leaders coming just way and and Mike said well something's going on let's let's get together and one of the people is this Eric Metaxas and he is he's just sharp he is uh, he's written books he wrote about Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, which Mike reiterated the story so powerful um, um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer it, it's actually on the front of this book though this book is about um, our Constitution uh, Bonhoeffer, pastor, martyr, prophet, spy. Moral of the story, he was involved. He saw immediately what Hitler was going to be. He was a young man of great intelligence, great background, all kinds of potential, young man. Uh, could have escaped to America, but he decides to stay with his people. He died, and he begins to speak out against Hitler, which he wasn't long. Um, he was actually part of, now this will twist you a little bit, of the assassination plans that they were making to take Hitler out because they saw him as an evil person. So you mix this passion of who he was with that, and it doesn't fit in most church mentalities. Like, oh, what? But he, he, was, he was very intent and very devoted. And when he died as a martyr, it impacted everybody that watched it. Like, oh my gosh, this guy had such a revelation of, of death and what it meant to give your life for the Lord. Like, it was just amazing. So Eric says this, he, he records this, and I can read, read out of here. And the name of this book is you can, If You Can Keep It. And it was in this moment when uh, this season of time, like for the next 10 to 11 years, the colonies went into upheaval because they lost their common currency, which is, would have been the British crown, if I understand right. And though they all had their own money, there was a problem with exchanging it. There were fights and arguments about boundaries. And the biggest thing of all was they had enemies. 
the Spanish were in Florida that were wanting to, that were a real threat to come up because now everybody wanted America. The French were making their way up the Mississippi River and establishing things. And if you remember in your history, there was this thing called the Seven Year War, the French Indian War, that was actually fought all over the world, from the Philippines to wherever that war, that's how far reaching it went, like really bizarre. And it was actually our great friend and first president, George Washington, that under command started that thing. And where, guess where it was? The Ohio Valley. They found that the French were coming up and they were aggressively taking over and George Washington with a delegation was sent here and they opened fire and the game was on and spread all over the world. Isn't that crazy to know? Like now sitting in this, this like, oh, I'm finally interested in history, you know? And, and you're like, inquiring minds want to know, and how did this happen, and how did that happen, and where did this come from? At the end of that war, Britain was deeply in debt because they were protecting their colonies. And they fought this war, but they were deeply in debt, and so they turned to the colonies without making them a part of the decision and started imposing strict tariffs to get recoup the money that they had lost in this. And that's when things here started going upside down. So this whole concept of this day, July 4th, the revolution and our declaration of independence, it wasn't really what the colonists wanted. That wasn't their heart. They were fine to be under the crown and, and whatever, if they would have been, they're maybe handled differently, I don't know. But they, they didn't have it in their mind to revolt. That only happened as a last resort when they got pushed, what I just read, when they got pushed to the extreme and they went, we can't do this. So there was a lot to that. So you go, oh. And so when they came into this, they were in, the colonists now were in desperate straits because they didn't have a, a national, they had some things in place, but nothing that covered everybody. And they went into this, it took about 100 days to come up with our Constitution, which is, as I got older, I started looking at this thing, and I'm like, how did they come up with this? Like, you don't just sit down on a Sunday afternoon and write out the Constitution. This is complex, and you can feel that the sovereign Lord is in that. They're in these negotiations, and they, in, I forget which city, um, I should know exactly where that's at. In Philadelphia, I think, yes. And, um, they're, ha and they're at a, gr a gridlock. They can't agree on anything. They can't agree. They're real, it's really going south. They're all losing hope that they're ever going to get this accomplished. Benjamin Franklin was part of that. He was the, they, they called him the sage of the Constitution. He was 81 years old. And um, a man by the name of James McHenry, a delegate from Maryland, he was, only, he was the youngest representative, he was uh, 34, whatever his role was, he was a delegate, at this convention they were holding. And he gets to witness an exchange that became so, so famous. And that exchange was this woman named Mrs. Powell 
walks up, up to Benjamin Franklin. Evidently, they know each other, and we don't have any other information. And she asks this, this question. Um, he was then 81. He was the sage. I've lost my place. Here it goes. According to McHenry, Mrs. Powell put her question to Franklin, Franklin directly. Well, doctor, she asked him, what have we got? A republic or a monarchy? Now, that was a big deal. Very big deal. Because they just come under, out from under a monarchy. And they're like, we don't want this. We can't handle this. Like, we, want, we don't want that oppression. And we don't want to become one of those. So it's really a life and death struggle, like whatever we create. It wasn't just like, hey, let's all get together and create the United States of America. Everyone would say, hey, great idea. They were scared to death to do that. Because up until now, and another thing that I was blown away with was out of this, uh, uh, our um, restoring our republic from this Ned Ryan, was you, I got, you got this picture as the colonies grew that they lived under covenant with one another. They were, and they, they had all of the different elements and the different places that where they cropped up. And there was a, they were at one because they had common ground, common, they were shared common goals and common things. So the covenant among them was enough to keep them established. And they were, it was very religious because there was freedom. There was just freedom for that voice. They weren't under the church. They didn't exclude, but, but as you see in these states as they cropped up, and these colonies as they cropped up, they had this uniqueness uh, to, to be different things. So I don't want to get too much in the weeds with this. So this question was, what is it? Is it a constitution or a republic? And, and um, Benjamin Franklin answers, a republic if we can keep it. And so that becomes the name of Eric Metaxas' book, A Republic, If We Can Keep It. And we're at this moment right now where we're just barely keeping it because there are many people, a whole group of people that would love to get rid of our Constitution. That is what hinders them from just full-blown taking over, taking us to a whole new... They hate the Constitution. They really do. You'll find this group. I don't even want to separate Democrats and Republicans because they're, they're all in this together. Like, we're, there's just people that have integrity, people that don't. People that, that care about the truth and people that don't. And so it's really tough, though there is truly a this side and that side, uh, it's much bigger than party lines or anything else. Like, it's corruption is through the whole, the whole government, the whole thing. Let me hit on a couple points from, from this book. The history, the how it came about, is, is just so um, significant. It gives us understanding, and we, we start to appreciate. Um, I marked a couple places. and Without that background, so a Frenchman, Arlette, you'll appreciate this, um, and I can't do his name justice, Alexis, then D-E, and then T-O-C-Q-U-E-V-I-L-L-E. -L -L -E. That's worse than Lotzenheiser, like, especially if you don't know French. 
So Tocqueville, Tocqueville, something like that. He comes to America in 1831 as a historian. Like, he's fascinated with some things about the uniqueness of America, and he's like, how did it get here? This really helps to understand, to see. One aspect of the American freedom, it's like he wanted to study the American people and her laws in order to discern the source of her freedoms, because now people were flocking to America because of the free, the newfound freedom. Everybody, they were hungry. The people that were, they were hungry. They still are. They're still coming here legally, illegally, any way they can get in because of what? Because of the freedoms we have. One aspect of American freedom impressed itself deeply upon his mind, the relationship between freedom and the Christian faith. Do you understand? how deep this is in our roots. This isn't like passive. It, it's horrible to say, let's separate that. You can't. That's our DNA. That is how we came about and through those prayers that God established us. We should not have run one. That story we just watched, do you understand the hopelessness in that situation? The whole British fleet is out in the ocean shooting at America. I mean, Somehow we survived that and overcame. In America, it is religion that leads to enlightenment. It is the observance of the divine laws that guides man to freedom, he concluded. Freedom sees in religion the companion of its struggles and, and of its triumphs, the cradle of its infancy, the divine source of its rights. It considers religion as the safeguard of moor, of moors, which is a moor is a, something you tie a ship to to hold it, like moor that way. More, more of that. <laughs> uh, the moors of the guarantee of laws and the pledge of its own duration. By discerning the relationship between freedom and faith, Tocqueville had stumbled upon a significant principle. In order to be free, man must be subservient to the law, and in order to be subservient to the law, man must acknowledge a law higher than himself, namely an infinite and divine law, the law of God. According to the Bible, this law of God is evident to man through creation. And um, then this scripture, let me read it out of my Passion Translation. It's uh, Romans chapter 1. Romans 1, 18, 1 um, 18 through 20, I believe. Right here. For God in heaven unveils his holy anger, breaking forth against every form of sin, both toward ungodliness that lives in hearts and evil actions. For the wickedness of humanity deliberately smothers the truth and keeps people from acknowledging the truth about God. In reality, the truth of God is known instinctively, for God has embedded this knowledge inside every human heart. Opposition to truth cannot be excused on the basis of ignorance, because from the creation of the world, the invisible qualities of God's nature have been made visible, such as his eternal power and transcendence. He has made his wonderful attributes 
easily perceived, for seeing the visible makes us understand the invisible. So then, this leaves everyone without excuse. Uh, I think the terminology in uh, um, the New King James is uh, even nature itself declares that there is a God. And if you, if you truly, like science will lead you to the, to the realization there is a God, it doesn't lead you away. True science, true study, true facts lead you to the real, realization there is a God. There's this beauty in all of creation, seed, harvest, uh, uh, planting and, and harvest and, and all of the elements of, of, of what we are, uh, of what we see, like visually, it leads you to understand that there is a God. We have nothing to be ashamed of if you are a believer. Nothing whatsoever. Don't back off from that. It's a, it's a great, great honor to have faith and to have understanding that there is a God, that he loves us, that he, that he has established us, that he has called us, that he watches over us. It's, it is in our DNA to look for him, to seek him, and to believe that he is. So it's interesting this man comes from France and he, he's, he's studying this and he sees this correlation. It's like, what's, how did they get this freedom? How did they get this? This was the new world. The pilgrims were uh, intent upon advancing the kingdom of God. Let me make sure I'm in this place. Uh, da, 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 da. Oh, I'm sorry, that's... The colonies are founded and the great awakening. So at every point, as they began to prosper, just like Israel, as the colonies grew and people grew, then they would find they were falling away from the Lord. As they prospered, then sin comes in. And so when they started seeing this, then the revivalists came, and there were many revivalists. It's very... Uh, much a part of our nation and the growth of our nation, even back back here, Jonathan Edwards and different ones were coming. They started preaching again, um, and and get us back, get people back on track. It's it's revival. It's it's knowing Jesus as being a transformed person. It's about connecting with something that's higher than yourself. At, and even as a people, it cannot, it should never be separated from who we are as a nation. God loves nations. He, call, he speaks about nations and peoples all the time. That is not something foreign. God, the Bible never comes against the concept of what a nation is. And he, he's, he works in this patiently letting us grow and building us and tweaking things. Christian peoples from all over Europe fled religious persecution to settle in America. That's why they're here. Virginia was, of course, settled with the founding of Jamestown in 1609. The colony of Maryland was founded in 1632 as a, as a settlement for Catholics. 
It, issue, it would issue the Maryland Toleration Act in 1649, which was one of the first laws that explicitly defined tolerance for all sects of Christianity, and it is considered precursor to our First Amendment, religious freedom. After the Great Puritan Revolt and the Battle of Seven, uh, Battle of the Seven near Annapolis, the Calvert family managed to regain control of the colony in 1658. And so you see all this going on in 1638. Uh, the same man who brought the island of, bought the island of Manhattan from the Indians for trinkets worth $24. It was a deal. In conjunction with the Swedish government, where did they, you know, how did that, it's like, see, there's all this stuff, all these, all these influences, all this stuff that happened. There was a part of this. So it says, it would land with a band of Swedes near, um, near what is today Wilmington, Delaware, promptly calling the colony New Sweden. It was the Swedes who brought the, the quintessential log cabin design to America. So there's a reason for all these things showing up. There's, there's history. There's a, a trail of things that come and, and, and how it grew and how it des designed. Then he annexed to um, another, another place here. I think it's the same situation. Then, then it would be annexed to Pennsylvania before becoming its own self-governing colony named Delaware in 1704. Um, Pennsylvania, of course, meant Penn's Woods. Um, it was a refuge for religious outcasts. So there was this uniqueness to each of these colonies as they formed, what, what was just going on there uh, at the time. In certain areas, several communities chose to join together for their mutual protection and prosperity. One of the first unions to be formed from such a partnership was the Commonwealth or Public State of Connecticut, established in 1639. It, in making a covenant with each other, the people of Connecticut set in writing the laws and regulations that were to govern the new state. This document, the Fundamental Orders of Connecticut, I'd never heard of that, was the first, was the world's first written constitution. So there's the first constitution. Um, this goes on with this history, how things develop, and then you see these reformers come. Uh, here's a Dutch reformer called Theodore Freeling, is a foreign name. Um, he's from Dutch, he's Dutch. I think being half German, I should be able to pronounce that, but I can't. He began preaching revival sermons to his congregation in New Jersey, an immigrant from Germany, uh, Freeling Hughes, and it's rough, had brought to America a teaching called pietism. It's like, oh, that's like gives me cold chills. But it wasn't a bad thing. It was a good thing. It, which encouraged believers to consecrate on the practice of holiness in a daily life, to live a holy life. That was a, and, and so these things were, the revival would come and they would get reestablished in returning to God and getting that, that first. And that's what kept this nation in its early days prospering. They kept prospering. They kept regrouping, coming back. Jonathan Edwards had a big impact. His revivals game, uh, Whitcliffe, um, no, Whitfield, I'm sorry. It's, it, um, 
supposedly this is from Whitfield. He said, Father Abraham, are there any Anglicans? How was this? This must be a story, characterized symbols, message. Uh, because of all the combination of people that were coming, both the message, the response were universal, da da da. Anyways, this is, is it's more of a story, this told. Father Abraham, are there any Anglicans in heaven? The answer came back, no, there are no Anglicans in heaven. Father Abraham, are there any Methodists in heaven? No, there are no Methodists in heaven. Are there any Presbyterians in heaven? No, there are no Presbyterians here either. What about the Baptists or the Quakers? Nope, nope, there are none of those here either. Father Abraham cried Whitfield, what kind of people are in heaven? The answer came back, there are only Christians in heaven, only those who are washed in the blood of the Lamb. Whitfield then cried out, oh, is that the case? Then God help me, God help us all to forget having names and to become Christians in deed and truth. So those were the revelations that were going through the colonies as they were growing, and the preachers and the revivalists, they, they kept forming them and bringing them back. They realized they're all a chosen people having come to America to find freedom of conscience and to move about at liberty and to build new lives, a land flowing with milk and honey. They had come in order to live as servants of God rather than as, as subjects of a king, and that's what we're fighting to preserve. That we won't become subjects of a king, but that we that we are are serving a God, be servants of God. These realizations inspired Americans to look beyond their cultural and denominational differences, because up till now, this was the those were the reasons that they gathered. They had things in common like that. That was all fine until, but it's it it kept hitting a wall, and they had to expand that and realize that's what became so unique about America. These realizations inspired Americans to look beyond their cultural and denominational difference. They began to see each other as fellow countrymen working alongside each other toward a common goal. Years later, Tocqueville, the Frenchman again, would explain this natural connection that arose between religious faith and American patriotism. The greatest advantage of religions is to inspire holy contrary, like holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, like whole, contrary instincts. He wrote, there is no religion, he continued, that does not impose on each man some duties toward the human species or in common with it, and that does not thus draw him from time to time away from contempl the contemplation of himself. In other words, it deals with this self-centeredness and serving yourself. That religion causes you to look out, to reach out, to have a benevolent heart towards, towards those in need. So that America was never just about America. Like it was funny as the president came up with a slogan, make America great again, and it sounded so exclusive. No one has done more for the whole world than him and the patriots and that, that message. It liberated, surprised everybody, it liberated the whole world. It woke up the whole world to go after their, uh, their freedoms. Christianity, he discovered, taught Americans how to reconcile individual liberty with a concern for the community. So this, 
causes us to be better people is the beginning and the end. Being believers causes us to be the true people that it gives us integrity, it gives us a, it gives us a sense of right and wrong, it gives us a sense of boundaries, it, we have a, a conscience. Without that, even America with all of its constant, it can go, it, turn, it can turn corrupt. For if it does not give them the taste for freedom, it singularly facilitates their use of it. In other words, they will use it for personal gain. They'll abuse it. I need to wrap this up today. These last comments. Um, the revolution in the United States was produced <clears throat> by a mature and reflective taste for freedom. So it wasn't just a passionate rebellion. We have a t-shirt, 1776, and Adam has a hat on, 1777. It, 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 it's that moment where we're, we're like, I, I'd rather, you know, give me liberty or give me death. I won't come, I don't want to come under that. I won't come under that. I refuse to come under that. But it wasn't like just being rebellious. It was so much more. Revolution were, uh, they were not revolutionary at all. It is true that the members of the founding generation were compelled to make unprecedented decisions in their struggle against tyranny, but their reasons for doing so were anything but radical. They fought not to establish a new order, but to preserve an old one. They entered the revolutionary conflict unwillingly and only after they had exhausted every other resource. I think that's really, really, really important to see. By the middle of the 18th century, America had the most autonomous society in the world, or self-governing, which was very attractive. They managed almost all of their own affairs through colonial legislatures, which, interesting, right now, our legislatures in uh, all of our states are awakening. The Constitution establishes them as very, that's who makes laws, and they had all but lost it, all of the states. They had all but lost, they quit doing that. They were letting governors that are just kind of a rogue and going on their own to change things, especially we went to watch this with the election laws and uh, all of the, the craziness that went on, and we're like, you're not allowed to do that, but no one was stopping it. And so the, these things were established. We're returning, even as a nation right now, at this very moment, returning to our roots and just embracing the Constitution that was, that was so um, uh, far-reaching. It, it dealt with all of these things. And so we're the people, like, we should not check out. And um, one of the big things on my heart there's so much stuff to cover, but I just need to pull up. I've been preaching on this theme, revelation, that I've had, just upgrade about following Jesus. Like, it answers so many things. I've been preaching about that. And I've started to pray that I would have an anointing 
to partner with the Lord to call people to follow Jesus because I believe that every person needs to individually hear that call. That is what makes you an individual. That's what separates you, uh, calls you out, of the, from, out from under enemies, and it calls you out from, un, from being out from under your loved ones who can be more of an en- a hindrance sometimes to your walk than enemies. And it, it, it causes you to be your own purses, person when Jesus calls you and you decide, do I follow him or not? Otherwise, you're going to follow something. You're kidding yourself if you think you're not. You will fall prey to something. So choose him because he's the only one that can complete you and make you, make you free. And um, I recent, then I, so I've been, I've begun to pray for that true anointing. Like this is be the anointing the evangelist has when, when he's giving an altar call and people are just, move, there's just a real, such an awareness, I'm, Jesus is calling me. Like my heart's pounding, like there's an anointing, call people to follow, follow Jesus. And I believe that that, you, I really would want to see everybody experience that. And then I realized that an upgrade of that beyond that was to have an anointing to call people to follow Jesus in whatever, whatever the Lord has for them to do. I, I don't have any flair, though. I would love to help in this political arena, but I... I, I don't I don't have I don't have that. I don't have that anointing. I don't have that thing. But there are so many areas and all of the I'll get into the the, the mountains that the Lord of of uh, of influence that we, we need to capture, that the Lord would love for us to capture. That's how we can save this nation. And that has been the seven mountains and praying for uh, all of all of these areas. But people need called to those areas. Like they need to hear that call. Just like I have a call to be in the ministry, they need to have a call. It is also the ministry to go to that mountain. And, and if we'll all just follow Jesus in the calling that he puts on us, do you understand? We'd get it. We'd, we would take it. We would take the mountains. We would take the hill. We would take everything that's before us. And so let there, you know, my heart's just on fire to let there be an awakening and that instead of uh, distancing ourselves, let me close with this illustration. Mike Johnson, uh, how long has it been since you became a trustee? A couple years? Year and a half? So he tells a few of us, hey, I think I'm going to run for trustee. Now, Mike is one of the most quiet people in the church, much quieter than Jonathan. It's like, you know, he's quiet, speaking mannerisms and uh he tell and, and he says that and i'm like I, I was like mike you're so quiet how would you how are you even going to run like you're just like personality wise I, I i'm like oh okay you know it kind of surprised me but he did that just quietly got his pens and got his note just did the couple things they did started talking to people and started going around and now he's a trustee and he has been doing an amazing job. Instead of going in with a chip on his shoulder, like, I'm going to fix this mess. That doesn't help anything. He went with this real heart, like he felt, he felt moved to do it. He felt called to do it. And so he went after it. He became a trustee. Things are changing. And we have some workers here in the trustee that are like, called here rather than it doesn't pay that well um uh 
Kenny Sherrill's, uh, um, who is Jimmy Gray to his, yeah, 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 brother-in-law, brother-in-law, yeah, 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 what's wrong with me? And, and it's like, we now, in this township, went from being, it was very embarrassing before, I'll just say that, we've gone to have the, the um, accolades of townships all over, even once, because the challenge is you never have enough money to do things, but they have found ways. And, and things that happen, Mike has been very um, creative about finding what's like, oh, we don't have money to do that or deal with this. It's like, well, let's look for, let's look for a, a grant. Let's look for things. And he just has found ways, and he's just been quietly in the midst of these trustees. There are only three trustees, aren't there? In our, it's just a small township. But he stepped into that, and it's, it's changed a lot of things around here, honestly. There was no end of trouble with the old guard going back quite several years ago because there was not integrity because of how things were being done. There was always confusion. Always, people were always angry about it. Like you just couldn't go anywhere that someone wasn't complaining about things here. <laughs> it was just how it was. And uh, peace has come. Why? Because because we're staying away or because we're criticizing? No, because stepped into things. And there are others of you, like if you're in the school system, be an influence there. Like realize that. We need people in the school board, but not people that have a chip on their shoulder about the school board. Like if you believe in, this, in, in the school system and you feel called to it, we need people that will stand up and have integrity and will, and will truly stand up for our kids. Like, Sean and Kathy are involved. And, and it's, it's not big stuff sometimes. And what I'm hearing from other patriots, like just get involved at your local level. Just get involved where you are. Be a mouthpiece. Be, bring this light. We make a difference. It, the only thing you can do wrong is to stay quiet, silent, and disconnected and angry and frustrated, you know. Like, if you complain about it, stop complaining and ask this question, Lord. Like, here am I, Sammy. Like, you can make a difference, and it's about this. The elements that we have, the, uh, the way the Lord trains us to deal with our relationships, that's very valuable in the world. The way the Lord trains us, teaches us, calls us to walk in integrity and walk in, in morality, like all of those things, they're huge. They're huge elements, we need, and we carry that. So there's a call here, and I pray that I get this anointing just to call people into their places and position that is truly like where they, where they feel to be. Like, you'll have that. If you're supposed to be in something, you'll have that. And you'll just, like, all of a sudden, you'll be like, boy, all this, I'm interested in this. And that calling into those areas is just as valid as my calling standing here. Johnny Enlow pointed this out. There's, you're, the church is only going to bring on a very small percentage of people that are called to the ministry. Everybody else, is that, is that all that's called to the ministry? No, everybody is called. Just find your place to be called and go there, take kingdom principles and vow. And you can even be somewhat quiet about that, but be this person. Be this person that has vision. Be this person that's creative. Do you understand wisdom lives in you? Like you have access to supernatural wisdom. At one point in the, in, and I'll go over this again next week, I'll actually read the prayer, but... Um, 
Benjamin Franklin interrupts this um, convention that is hopelessly in gridlock about how to establish our Constitution, how to write this. There, it's dead in the water. It's dead, honestly. People are leaving. <coughs> it looks like a church split on the ready to happen. A disgruntled, they're mad, they're this, they're that, they're leaving, they're checking out, they're going, you know, going back to their farms. And he addresses them and said, Hey, God, we prayed to our creator, he got us through that revolution that we just went through, which was pretty hopeless. God always delivered us. Do you think maybe we should pray about this now? And so he calls them back to return to, let's ask God to help us. After all, he will. He wants to. And, and you see what, you know, no one was trying to create a nation that would be the greatest nation. They were just trying to create something so they could live peacefully. So let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, I just thank you for our country and our nation. I ask that you just bring peace, favor to us. We ask that you bless our, our leaders and our government. We pray for them and we just uh, forgive us for the disdain that we have had. We appreciate the difficulty of being a leader when it's tough. Of being a leader when, when decisions are very, very, very challenging and threatening sometimes. Father, we, we pray for them. We want to come alongside. We want to be the citizens and embrace our Constitution and embrace the truth and bring the light into the darkness because we have the light. And we know the one that we can call upon, the one that is faithful. <coughs> so on this day, Father, we ask, save our nation. Save our republic. Be merciful to us. We have failed, but we ask for an opportunity to repent and to turn from all of our ways that don't please you. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you all.